Turn in your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 3 as we come to the halfway point. John Lederer, you may not have heard of his name. John Lederer was a 17th century German doctor. He was a physician. He was a naturalist. uh, And he was an explorer. And uh, as much as the Englishman hated it, um, this German physician was the first European to view across the vistas of the Appalachian Mountains. Um, And on his first trip to the western part of our state and the the mountains of Virginia, he stood on the the mountaintops there and looked across the, the vistas, the first one to see the Shenandoah Valley, the first one to see all the way into the Allegheny Mountains, Um, As his party stood on top of those mountains, they really did not grasp and understand exactly what it was they were seeing. And this is what he wrote in his journal there in 1669. On the 14th day of March, from the top of an imminent hill, I first described that Appalachian Mountains. And he spells Appalachian, A-P-A-L-A-T-E-A-N. It was just his transliteration of the Cherokee name. So he said, I first described the Appalachian Mountains bearing due west to the place I stood upon. Their distance, he writes, from me was so great, I could barely discern whether they were mountains or clouds. And then he goes on to describe 
what in the day they thought was just really an eight or ten day journey across the United States or across this continent. And they called what was then what we call the Pacific Ocean. They knew that as the Indian Ocean. But here's what he says. They certainly are in great error who imagine that the continent of North America is but eight or ten days journey from the Atlantic to the Indian Ocean. So he was able to see from these peaks really what he did not fully understand. But what he could understand was this is vaster, this is more immense, this is more magnificent than any of us have ever imagined that it would be. And that's kind of the place where we are as we come to the end of Ephesians chapter 3. And so before we even finish Paul's prayer in Ephesians 3, it's helpful for us to look back, you know, as John Letterer did. He looked back at where he had been and he looked to where he wanted to go and really then didn't even conceive of all that would entail, all that all that would be a part of. Uh, so take, take your Bible and let's, let's look at Ephesians for just a second. And as we stand here at the end of chapter 3, let's, let's look back. Now we recognize as we do that we can't see where we started. The reason we can't see where it starts is because it starts in eternity past, right? Paul begins there in chapter 1. He says, he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him, where? Before the foundation of the world. So if we look back to where we started, it's back further than before anything. Before the foundation of the world is where this journey starts. And so if we look back... Then built upon that are these amazing foundational blocks of promise. The, all of this that God has done. He chose us in Christ. He predestined us for adoption. He, ha- he gave us redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. We look back and we see all of these things that God has done. The promise of adoption. That he is going to take us and bring us into his family. And give us the inheritance that is ours as children of the living God. And he gives us his Holy Spirit as the promise. That's the guarantee he tells us there at the end of this passage in verse 14 in chapter 1. So we look back and we see the promise of adoption. We see the hope that we have. We look back and we see that we have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. We look back and we see that this mysterious plan, listen, all centers on Jesus and his church. Notice that he says there. He says all of this he set forth in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 1. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. The fullness of time, if it's before the foundation of the world where it started, the fullness of time is eternity to come where it doesn't end. That's the fullness of time. And that plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on the earth. That's his plan. And so Paul then prays. That we, as finite, you know, we're nearsighted as far as spiritual things go. No, we're blind as far as things go spiritually. But he prays then for the eyes of our hearts to be in line. Notice this first prayer. He said, I pray that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, would give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him. That the eyes of your hearts, he said, would be enlightened or opened. Light would come into the eyes of our hearts. That we would know the hope that we have, the riches of his inheritance, and the power that God has for us who believe in Christ. Those who have placed their faith and hope in Christ. And how much is that power? Well, look. It's, It's that amount of power that it took 
to raise Jesus. It says in verse 20 that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but in the age to come. And in verse 22, he put all things under his feet and gave him his head over all things to the church which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. That's one of Paul's phrases that throughout eternity we'll be able to begin to grasp it more and more. What does it mean to be filled with the fullness of him who fills all? Well, that's, that's what he gives us there in verse 22. So there's this picture. So we look back and we see that God purposed this before the foundation of the world, that he raised Christ from the dead as an exhibition and demonstration of that power. By the way, that's the same power that spoke this world into existence. It's the same power that still holds this world together in spite of what we may see sometimes. And it's the power that raised Christ from the dead. But look at the connection point. Look at what he says there. Skip on down to chapter 2. God, in his magnificent power and mercy and grace, takes dead people, us, dead in our sins, dead in our trespasses and sins, the, the way we walked, following the course of the world, following Satan, following our own flesh. We were, we were sons of disobedience. He says we all walked in that way before. We were by nature children of wrath, like everybody else, he says. But verse 4, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, look at this, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you've been saved. And just as he raised Christ in verse 6, it tells us, and he raised us with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness in Christ Jesus. So here we are on this mountaintop raised with Christ. Alive in him, church. So what should be our perspective from this place? How should we see first ourselves and each other in this world around us? How should we see the things that go on in, in our world around us? How should we see now and tomorrow and eternity? And this is the perspective that, that Paul wants us to have as he sees where we are raised with Christ. So we look back. From this mountaintop, and we see this grace that's been extended and has reconciled us across this vertical divide between God and sinful man. And he's reconciled us to himself in Christ. And then we look back, Paul says, and we see that he's reconciled us horizontally. And the rest of chapter 2 spells out this amazing mystery that Christ has broken down the dividing wall of hostility. And instead of Jew and Gentile... Instead of different colors and different races, those aren't erased. He just takes us in our amazing diversity and unifies us in Christ. He unifies us in Jesus. The gospel is what brings us together. And he's creating in Christ one new humanity that we saw in the book of Revelation is going gonna, is gonna to dwell, is going to inhabit that new heavens and new earth. That's the picture of what he gives us here. So we look back and we see this horizontal unity that he gives us. We see that he's put all things under the feet of Christ, all things in the church. And his purpose in that, as we see in Ephesians 3, is that in the church, as I've said now for a couple of weeks, we're his show and tell. He holds up the church and says, this is my wisdom. This is my grace. This is my glory in Christ as we are brought together. Guys, we have got to see this place. And I don't mean this building. I mean us as the spiritual dwelling place of God. We must see it from God's perspective.
You must see that this church is eternal. And that God's eternal purposes are being carried out in and through his church. It's not insignificant. It is not just an add-on. It is not just something we do in our spare time, okay? It's not something we do for a couple hours on Sunday morning. It's through the church that his manifold wisdom will be seen and made known for all of eternity. And then Paul begins this amazing prayer as he comes to the middle of this book. He, he comes to the middle and he, and he just pauses again and he says, um, he, he prays. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every, I think it best says, every spiritual family in heaven and earth is named. So he bows his knees before the Father. And as he bows his knee before the Father, he says, according to the riches of his glory, we saw this last week, here is our God who is magnificent in his holiness, magnificent in his glory and his grace, and he is rich. He's rich in his glory. He's rich in his power. That he may grant you to be strengthened with power, he said, in your inner being, in the very soul of who we are. Because that's, that's, that's who we are, right? That's, that's the steering mechanism for our lives. That's who we are. And that's where that power comes and takes up residence. That he would grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. That Christ may dwell, he says. Take up residence. Remember, we talked about that. That Jesus comes in and makes our hearts his home. And he tears it down and rebuilds it according to the way he wants to do that. So today, we've been, I've been praying all week that today, you'd, and we say this phrase, understanding that there's so much more to it, but, but by grace, by God's grace, we repent of our sin and we do pray that Christ would come into our hearts. We pray that God would come in and take his throne upon our hearts. That's that initial step. He's there if we've trusted in him. But to take up residence is that whole process of sanctification, that whole process of growing in Christ and becoming more like Christ, having the mind of Christ that Paul prayed for in Philippians, right? So that's what he means when he says that he would come and he would dwell in our hearts through faith. And that we then would have this power, okay, listen, the power that raised Christ from the dead, the power that raises us with Christ and seats us with him in the heavenly places, that we would have that same power then to comprehend how much God loves us. To comprehend the, the, the length and the breadth and the height and the depth of the love of God. That we would know more today than we did yesterday. And we would know more tomorrow than we do today. And you just keep extending that timeline out for all of eternity. That we would continue to come to know what cannot be known fully. Which is the love of God. Man, what a, what a great thing to look forward to. To know the love of God that surpasses knowledge, he says, that you may be filled with the fullness of Christ. So that's Paul's pattern as he prays. And he does this a lot. He comes to these places in prayers where he just stops and he breaks out in an amen. He just breaks out in a hallelujah. He just breaks out in praise as he thinks and considers and really meditates on what it is that God is doing for us in Christ and the gospel. He does that in the book of Romans. In Romans chapter 11, he comes to this amazing end of the chapter in 11 where he's talking about God's election and just going deep. Lord in mercy, he's going deep. And he talks about that depth. He says, oh, the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? 
For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. That's the way he prays. He does the same thing at the end of Timothy. To the king of ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. And so what, what I've done, Scott and I were talking, Scott Williams, and I, he said, are you preaching tomorrow? This was yesterday. We're having a backyard conversation. I said, yeah, I'm preaching. Why? He said, those sermon notes were different. You know, they just, it just looked a little different in your sermon notes. I said, yeah, I know. Um, and, and this isn't original to me necessarily. Um, one of the commentators that I use described this as like a stair step of, of prayer, a stair step of praise. And we, as you know, if you've been at Westwood any time, you know we're going to work through books of the Bible. We're going to work through chapters of the Bible. We're going to work through sections of Scripture, you know. We're going to work our way through those. And this is one of those passages where we're really going to work through it almost word by word. Because every single word is important for us to see. And so that's why it's, it's kind of laid out for you in this, in this way, okay? Because Paul comes to the end of this prayer and he breaks out in doxology. He breaks out in praise. He breaks out just blessing God and praising God and wanting us to do it. And, and some commentators question whether or not the amen at the end, we'll see this when we get here, is whether it's Paul's amen or the people who were reading the letter to the Ephesians just said amen after he got finished with that. We'll do it both ways, okay? So that's, that's why it's laid out that way. That's the outline. That's the outline. Now, so let's just, let's just look at these two verses. Because Paul has shown us in this first part of the prayer, starting in verse 14, down through verse 19, he has shown us what we should pray for, for each other. I hope you prayed this this week. I hope, I hope you prayed it every day for yourself and for your church family and for others, whoever they may be, that we would be rooted and grounded in his love, that we would recognize our bond together as the family of faith under Christ, that we would recognize the riches of his glory and that would just allow Jesus to make his home in our hearts and, and that we would just be growing and filled up with the fullness of God. So as he comes to this place in this prayer and he breaks out in this, he begins by simply saying, now to him who is able, to him who is, let's just read it, to him who is able to do far more abundantly. Now, different versions are going to have that little phrase there in so many different ways. And so you'll see on the screen, I, I first memorized this in the NIV. And the NIV is different from the American Standard Version. The American Standard Version um, is going to be different from the New King James. Some of them, so this is kind of a compilation of all of them, okay? I didn't use just one. But the, here's what the ESV says. Now, to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. He begins by simply saying, now to him. Now, I'm not going to take a lot of time with this, but I just thought about Moses asking God on the mountain, what will I tell them your name when they ask? Who shall I tell them sent me? I am that I am. I am self-existent. I am from before and I will be after. So to him, to him, it just immediately points our attention to God. To him who is able. And the word there is dunamis. All right? We've seen it over and over from Paul. It's this, it has in it the meaning of having power within yourself to do what it is you set out to do. 
Commentators tell us that it describes to, to be able to cause an effect, to bring about, to bring into being. And so basically this means that God is not idle. He's not sitting up there in his rocking chair, you know, just waiting on things to happen. Our God is able and he's a doer. All right. He's working. And God wants us to be able to see him and see this about him and to contrast this with the other gods. That's the whole point of what we see over and over in the Old Testament. Turn over for just a second to the book of Isaiah. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 41. There's a couple of passages here, Isaiah 41 and chapter 42. But when we say that that our God is able now to him who is able to do just keep that him who is able to do. Think about those that are unable to do. All right. In Isaiah chapter 41, Isaiah, God is speaking through the prophet and God is just saying, bring your idols here and let's just put them to the test. All right. In Isaiah chapter 41, he says in verse 21, set forth your case, says the Lord, bring your proofs, says the king of Jacob. So bring all those little idols in here. Let's just line them up like a bunch of dolls. All right. Verse 22. Let, let them bring them and tell us what is to happen. Tell us the former things that they are, that we may consider them, that we may know their outcome, or declare to us the things to come. So God says, line up your idols. Let's not even worry about the future yet. Let's just see if you guys can tell us what happened in the past. All right? I love this. This is just, I love good sacred sarcasm. It is so, it is so awesome. In verse 23... All right, if you can't tell us what happened in the past, then tell us what is to come hereafter that we may know that you are God's. Do good or do harm, like do something, all right, <laughs> that we may be, be dismayed and terrified. And in verse 24, behold, you are nothing and your work is less than nothing. An abomination is he who chooses you. Now, over in chapter 44 of Isaiah, there's a long, beautiful analysis, if you will, examination, the folly of idolatry is what the ESV heads up, verses 9 and following. And, and it begins by saying, all who fashion idols are nothing, and the things they delight in do not profit. So he says, those who fashion idols are nothing, and by the way, what they fashion is nothing. And he goes on then to describe the ironsmith who uses his tools, fashions and hammers and works with his strength. And he becomes hungry and strength fails. He drinks no water and is faint. And he talks about a carpenter. A carpenter lays out his line and his pencil and his angles. He cuts a big, big strong tree. He cuts down the cedars. And, and, and with part of that, he builds a fire and he warms himself. And with part of it, he bakes bread and he eats. And part of it, he shapes into a little god. Do you hear that? And he comes and he warms himself and he says, oh, I'm warm. I have seen the fire. And the rest of it he makes into a god, his idol, and he falls down and worships it. How stupid. <laughs> but that's what God is saying of our idols, our man-made idols, the idols of our hearts. What Calvin says, our heart produces idols. So the point is, these aren't able, right? They're not able. Now, to him who is able to do, because our God is filled with self-sustaining power. He is the cause and effect of everything. Our God is able. And he is able to do what? Well, he's able to do what we ask or think. This connects it to us. 
I'm thinking about Jesus said over in the book of Matthew. In Matthew chapter 7, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Everyone who asks receives. And he who seeks finds. And the one who knocks, it will be opened. And then again, he, he helps us. I referred to this last week. Or which one of you, if a son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Our God is able to do what we ask. And he is able to do what we are not able to enunciate. We can think it, but maybe it doesn't get past our lips. He's able to do what we ask or what we think. But not just what we ask or think, all that we ask or think. It's just, it's just amazing. Paul just keeps coming with these amazing blanket statements, it seems. I love what James Montgomery Boyce said. When it comes to thinking about our God being able to do all that we ask or think, here's what he poses. Most of us are probably quite cautious in our prayers. So often we hold back in asking, afraid of embarrassing either God or ourselves. I can identify with that. I think some of you probably can too. What, what if he says no? What if I pray it out loud and everybody knows that he said no? Voice goes on. That is not the kind of prayer God commands in the Bible. This is the kind of prayer here that God commands in the Bible. Now, yes, there are guidelines that govern us, right? Now, on one hand, James says we don't have because we don't ask. And I think that is probably the case for most of us. At least I'm speaking for myself in the way that I pray. But then he also says that sometimes, maybe more times than not, Maybe time, sometimes way more than it should be. He says you do not have because you do not ask. And then he says you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We'll talk about that in a minute as we come to the end of this prayer. But here's my point. To him who is able to do all that we ask or think. That's, that's who we're praying to. That's the focus here. And he's able to do more than we ask or think. That's, that's where Paul eventually, that's where he takes this. It just keeps going. To him who is able to ask to do more, abundantly more, more abundantly than all that we ask or think. This goes all the way past our feeble, limited spiritual abilities. It goes past my feeble, limited spiritual imagination. I'm not even thinking the way I ought to be thinking. I'm not thinking as big, as, as God-sized as I should be, as I pray. I, I don't think we do that as a church the way we should. Think for this just a second. Abraham had faith. He's one of the examples that's held up to us in the book of Hebrews as a man of faith, right? But did he, have a, he didn't have a clue as to how amazing God was going to answer and do what God promised that he would do. He had, Abraham would stand up and say, I had no idea. I had no idea. God said, count the stars if you can. Abraham would say, I had no idea. 
What about the rest of the patriarchs? What about Jacob? What about Isaac? What about Moses? Moses stood on the mountaintop and said, God, we don't want to go anywhere if you don't go with us. God said, I will, my presence will go with you. Oh, man, did it ever. Did, did Moses have any idea how, how, how exceedingly abundantly God was going to answer that prayer of going with them? Or Moses stood on the mountaintop and said, Lord, let me see your glory. And God said, no. Do you remember the Mount of Transfiguration? There Moses stands with Elijah, with the glory of God in the flesh on the mountain. Moses would say, I had no idea. I had no idea. What about David? David in 2 Samuel prays this amazing prayer. It says in 2 Samuel 7, 28, O Lord God, you are God and your words are true and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, therefore, may it please you to bless the house of your servant. Here's, here's David's bold prayer. God, bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you, O Lord. Guess what, David? He will answer that prayer. But it will be exceedingly abundantly because above all you could ask or even imagine to ask when you see what the fulfillment of that prayer is going to be in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen? So these, these champions of the faith, think about Sarah and Rebecca and Rachel, barren, childless, old as dirt. And God answers the prayer in extraordinary ways. Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. I mean, just look at these examples of God answering prayer. And he says that he's able to answer these prayers immeasurably or exceedingly abundantly. Paul invented words. All right. Well, the Holy Spirit inspired Paul to invent. And this is one of Paul's. This is one of the Holy Spirit's words that he gave to Paul. He puts these words together to describe something that's incomparable, something that's that's he, he describes this that just goes way capital W, capital A, capital Y, way beyond, infinitely more, more abundantly, more exceedingly abundantly. Just keep adding the words. It just goes on and on. And that's what's being described here for us in this passage. Now, you would say, well, he's just a preacher exaggerating. That's what you guys do. Right. Right. I mean. No. No. I mean, in Ephesians chapter 2, you remember what he said back there in verses 6 and 7? He raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable, immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us. This incomparable, immeasurable. These words are, are Paul's words to describe what can't be compared to, what really can't be measured. We can't understand the length and breadth and height and depth of God's love because God is love. And so here he describes this amazing, immeasurable, abundantly, more than we could ask or imagine. So this is, if we want our theology term for the day, you've already had immutable, right, in Sunday school, all right, blew us away. Does God relent? Does God repent? Does God change his mind? I'm not here to answer that. Those are just the mysteries of, of the character of God and the way we try to understand what is not understandable from our perspective. But this speaks to God's omnipotence, his unlimited power. This is what we're talking about if we want to put a theological phrase on it. This is God's omnipotence. 
In, 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 in Genesis 18, the question said, is anything too hard for the Lord? Well, no. That's not a redundant question. No, there's nothing too hard for the Lord. Psalm 115.3, our God is in heaven. He does all that he pleases. Isaiah 55, so shall my word be that goes out of my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. It shall accomplish that which I purpose. Yes, I shall, it shall succeed in the things for which I sent it, God said. Oh, Lord God, Jeremiah said. Who has made the heavens and the earth by your outstretched hand. Nothing is too difficult for you. Our God is able. And he's able to do exceedingly abundantly. Immeasurably above all that we ask or think. And here's where it just. In some ways it seems to all of a sudden go. Pow. Just, just hit the bottom. What, with the power that is in us. What? Wait a minute. My eyes are fixed on God. My eyes are fixed on this God who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that is where? Within me. Within us. Do you see what he's saying here? The power of God that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above even what we can imagine in the lives of his people, what we are called to experience eternally from now on, knowing and growing in the fullness of God, is already within us. It's already here. The Holy Spirit is here. The power that raised Jesus from the grave, Peter tells us, that divine power has granted to us now all things that pertain to life and godliness. Do you get that, church? All things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us into his own glory and excellence, Peter says. That through this very power, not only do we pray and not only do we see God work and move, Peter says that it's through that power that we escape the corruption of this broken, sinful world. So this power is at work within us. Now, we understand, as we have with the book of Revelation, as we have with Ephesians, there is the now and there's the not yet. And boy, is this ever not yet, right? I mean, we are, we are not there yet. But what Paul wants us as a church to do, and I mean us as Westwood, and what I believe he wants us to do as individual Christians, is to get on top of the mountain of the gospel and live and pray accordingly. To get up there and live and pray. And to do it in a way that's going to glorify God. And that's because and, that's where this all ends up. Now, I really appreciate um, a couple of commentators this week who brought up a point that, that honestly I struggled with a little bit. I joked with Matthew back in the sound booth before, before it started. Because I really had on my mind this week this idea of God-sized prayers. You know, am I praying God-sized prayers? So I told Matthew this morning, I, I turned to my research assistant, Google, about halfway through the week. And I just entered in God-sized prayers. Don't do that. <laughs> Unless you're an Osteen fan. Because that was the first five hits. All right? I thought, dang. Somebody with some theological sense ought to be able to do something with a God-sized prayer. Excuse me, I shouldn't have said that. But... But that's what I'm talking about here. I think that's what Paul wants us to do. Is to, is to grow up in the way we pray. To grow out in the way we pray. To reach up in the way we pray. To stretch. To stretch. If you're working out, to increase your maximum, right? To, to go heavy. 
in what we're praying for. But the question comes up, well, like a lot of biblical verses, like a lot of biblical truths, is there a danger if you take this out of context? Can we take now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think? Are we is it okay to take that out of context? And I was I was you know, I was shocked really at the number of commentators that say, "Yes. Take this out of context." And let me let me put a fence around that a little bit so that we don't go crazy with it. But just think for just a second about the way we pray. All right? God, I know a brother in Christ in our church. I know others in our church, Lord, who's facing a real physical challenge. He's got cancer. Now, God, I'm praying to you. And I'm praying to you who is able, who is able to do who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I would even begin to ask or think about praying for that brother. There's nothing wrong with that prayer. Think about someone who's challenged maybe in, in, with something at work or some, some, some financial issue or something that's going on. Yes, our God is able. And our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. Now recognize, he's not, able, he's not necessarily going to take that ability and that power and fill your checking account. But he is able to do, as we will see in just a minute, exactly what needs to be done for his glory and your good in that situation. Think about a sailor or a soldier on a battlefield in the midst of a hot battle. And his faith is in Christ and he's praying, God, I know that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that I would ask or think. Praise God he's praying that. Yes, take it and pray it. What about some missionary that's living in a city that's unreached? He doesn't even know if there's another believer there. Think about some pastor that's going into a little dead country church someplace. Or he's in a big dead city church. God, I know that you're able to do exceedingly abundantly. Think about a coworker that you've set beside for months or maybe even years. Think about the husband that you've been in that house with for 20 years or that son of yours that's straying. Or think about those family situations. Would God please lead us to pray? You're exceedingly, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. I'm going to put my faith in that. I'm going to rest in this. I'm going to trust this. I'm going to stretch. And I'm going to pray this. Maybe, maybe, you're, maybe you don't have any children. I read this. Brian Chappell. I, I appreciate Brother Brian Chappell. Here's, here's what he wrote in um, one article that he wrote in relation to this. Maybe you're childless and you're praying for God to do something that the doctor has said is humanly impossible or for whatever reason. But here's what Chappell wrote. He said, in 1983, a childless woman named Mary Nelson was working in her garden in St. Louis praying while she worked. She asked God to help her not only in her grief for in the absence of children, but also in her bitter awareness that women who could have children chose to abort them. The absence of a child in her home created such a longing for life in her heart that Mary asked God there in the garden in 1983 to help her give life to children in whatever way he would lead. Nine months later, Mary, quote-unquote, gave birth to the first pregnancy resource center in St. Louis. 
And since that time, literally thousands of children have been spared due to the prayers and labors of Mary Nelson and others who followed her. She who was once, she who once asked to be a life-giving mother to one has become the life-saving mother to thousands. Oh, that God would lead us to take these verses and pray them. Pray them. Pray them for the Pineview neighborhood behind us. That, God, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we could ask or think about the souls that live back there. That we would say, God, you're able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think in a country that's war-torn like Ukraine. One and a half million refugees as of today going across the border, fleeing for their lives. God, you're able. You're able to do more than we could even imagine in that situation. Praise God that you are, because we can't even begin to think how it's going to work out. God, you're able to do that in each of these situations. I'll go over some more in just a second. So why would he do those things? Why is it that God is willing to answer and wants us stretching in faith and praying this way? Well, look at what Paul says. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. John Stott said the power comes from him, so the glory goes to him. It's that simple. The power comes from him and the glory goes to him. And it's important that this is here because even our best intentions... And our best efforts are right now housed in this, in this fleshly body. In this body that wrestles against sin. And in this mind that is slowly, snail pace slowly, being conformed into the likeness of Christ. And still struggles with self. With self-glory. With self-worship. With self-concern. And so it is possible, we all recognize this, I'm not going to rain on the parade that I'm trying to get started here, but it's possible to ask for good things for bad reasons, right? We, we recognize that. And we may desire the power of God to operate in our lives, but we must ask God by His Spirit to help us, even as we pray for more holiness, that we won't take the credit for that holiness, and even as we ask for God to give us the power to grasp his love and pour that love out to others, that when those others come to us and say, oh, thank you for loving me that way, you go, oh, really, it wasn't much. Yeah, glad to do it. That we would in every, we can distort our good request and we can see them from the perspective of ourselves if we're not careful or from our family or from our improvement or from the fame of our church or for whatever it may be. And so God says through Paul to us, as you're praying for me to do exceedingly abundantly above all that you ask or think, be sure that we are praying according to this parameter, if you will, for his glory, first in the church and then in Christ Jesus. Notice that he gives us these dimensions. And it's important that we recognize this. So this, this prayer really just gives us, I think, and I'm not going to put this in a formula, but this is, I believe this is what Paul's teaching us to pray here. We pray for these petitions that we lift them up to God and we say, God, with this immediate short term goal, I'm praying for you to answer this prayer for the sake of those refugees or for the sake of this ministry or for the sake of that person or the sake of this marriage or for the sake of this. I'm, I'm praying short term, God, that you would ask what I'm asking, that you would answer what I'm asking. But the ultimate goal is that you'd be glorified. 
and that you're glorified first in and through your church. That's what he had in mind from before the foundation of the world for the praise of his glorious grace. That's what he had in mind when he intended to predestine us for inheritance as his children to the praise of his glory. That's what he had in mind, Paul says, when he gave us his Holy Spirit as a guarantee to the praise of his glory. And all of that, he says, is in his church. In his living body, of which he is the head, the head gets the glory. In his flock, of which we are the sheep, the shepherd gets the glory. In the spiritual building that he's building up for his habitation for eternity, the cornerstone gets the glory, right? In this idea that he's building us up into this diverse, unified body of one man, separated separated strangers and alienated people being brought together under the head of Christ, he gets the glory, this new community of humanity. And so that's the point, that as we are growing in our knowledge of God together, as we were grasping the depth and the height of God's love together, that God is being glorified in the church. And if, it's, and if he is glorified in the church, where does that go? Well, it goes to Jesus in the church and in Christ Jesus, he says. Because he's the head. He's the shepherd. He's everything to us. And because he is those things, the glory goes to him. This is a real challenge for some. It is for me. I mean, you know, someone just comes up and says, you know, I really appreciate the way you did this with that sermon. Or I appreciate... You know, what your church is doing over here or, you know, if you're in a responsible position with a ministry or something going on at your school, even in your classroom or in your office, you know, how is it that we deflect up when that horizontal praise or accolade comes? Paul says to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus. That's what's going to happen in the end, right? I saw no temple in the city for its temple is the Lord God and the almighty and the lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb, and by its light the nations will walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. We'll have no trouble there, amen? We'll have no trouble deflecting it up, because we'll be up. We'll be there. That's what we have to look forward to. The location of His glory and His praise is in the church, and it's in Christ, and look at the longevity of it throughout all generations. Here's what's so cool about this. I was back, I was looking through some of the Westwood history books over the last couple of weeks, putting together a little presentation for a group. You know, I was just looking back over the, going on now 60 years and seeing these faces and these names. And just thinking of God's steadfast faithfulness over what is just a breath of time in the scope of things. But just think about it. God has been and is continuing to do far more abundantly than we ask or think throughout generations. He's done it in generations past. He'll do it if the Lord tarries in generations to come. That as the seeds of the gospel are planted by faithful mamas and daddies, as Jesus has spoken into the lives of their children and grandchildren by faithful grandmas and grandpas and aunts and uncles, as the church family speaks into the lives of our young people and plants the seeds of the gospel there and the Holy Spirit takes them and grows them, Generational work is being done. It's going to go on through my children and those grandchildren and those great-grandchildren to come. Think about that. Dad, you can leave them your financial inheritance. Statistics say that at least in a generation and a half, it'll be shot. You leave them Jesus. 
throughout all generations. Generations of the past, generations to come. There will never be a moment that the glory is not due him. Never. There will never be a moment that he's not working in and through you, mom and dad, as you are faithfully trying to speak Jesus and live for him in your family. There will never be a moment, grandpa and grandpa, when you're not speaking the gospel and living it out in front of your children, that he is not there to do immeasurably more than you could ask or even imagine. And there will never be a moment in the life of this church when we are walking by faith and praying in faith that he's not going to work through this church to do immeasurably more than we would even ask or imagine that. That's the promise that he gives us here. And so as we just think through this for a minute, I mean... Bobby and Wanda Temple, Sharon's mom and dad, left. Uh, well, they're in Poland now. North Carolina Baptist men on, men on mission. North Carolina on mission. I forget the name. It used to be Baptist men, but we don't call it that anymore. What is it? Baptist on mission. Thank you. That ought to be easy to remember. Um, but Dr. Dan Phillips, who's a physician here in our community out at Olive Branch Church, Dan and Bobby and Wanda, another team, flew out. They're setting up. There in Poland, just seeing how God might use North Carolina Baptists to minister and serve there and just be a part of what God wants to do in the lives of those people. How do we pray for them? We pray for God to do immeasurably more than we could even ask or imagine in and through them and through us. Opportunity may come for us to get on a plane and go over there and serve. So we pray that way. What about, again, in the country of Ukraine where there's a million and a half refugees and the thing seems to be falling apart at the seams? Our God is able, amen? And he's able to do more than we could even ask or imagine. This is where the Holy Spirit must intercede with our spirits so we know how to even pray for that situation. But let's make them big, all right? Let's, let's pray that way. What about for our families? What about for the health situations that I've talked about? What about for lost people? We're not praying enough for the lost. Because we're not seeing them come to Jesus. And we need to pray for that. Who's on your list of lost? Who is it you're praying for by name daily to come to faith in Christ? God is able. He's able to do immeasurably more than you ask or even think in that. So pray that way. He is able. This has been just the idea that we would be here where we're at in our world has just been a weighing on me this week. I shared a little bit last week. Let me, I'm not going to take a long time to do this. But, you know, I shared last week that our application with Samaritan's Purse was, you know, it was still at the Department of State. We've been approved, but not approved because all the families up there had already been placed and all that other kind of stuff, you know. But And our team met after church last Sunday, and we prayed together, our, our planning team. And, and the consensus of our team was... That even though there's this change in our plans, it's not a no. It's just a different. All right? It's just different. What we thought really didn't matter. All right? <laughs> that, because God's ideas were going to be different. So we left with that understanding. Then Tuesday, yeah, Tuesday, we got a call from Samaritan's Purse. There's, there's, a, there's an Afghan family, a mother with five children in a single hotel room in Raleigh. They're in that hotel room. They don't have any support. We don't know how they got there. Some agency brought them in and they just fell through the cracks or that agency was overwhelmed. We don't know. We don't know what happened. This mother's got either stage three or four breast cancer. 
One of the children, the 15-year-old daughter, speaks a little bit of English. They're not in school. They haven't been enrolled. They don't have any support help. They don't have any way to get that support help. Samaritan's Purse is supporting this family. Now, our plan was to bring a family to Roxborough, right? Love them, serve them, churches come together. Well, these folks are in Raleigh. And she needs to be in Raleigh where she's getting chemo once a week at Rex Hospital. So that reality comes into our world on Tuesday. And I'm already working through a sermon that says, Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask and think, through the power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So how do, what do we do there? Well, we just begin to pray. God, we're church in Roxborough. We can't take care of that family in Raleigh. God, we don't have the funds. They're not going to have money coming in from the government, at least not like some of those refugee families do. So here's the deal. All right, I'm not going to get into all the details. The elders met this morning. We talked through it. We prayed through it. Again, it's not a no. It's just a yes in a different direction. And there's churches in Raleigh this morning in Durham praying through this very thing that they could partner with us. We'll be the lead in it if we do it because we're the Samaritan's first church that's been approved. Nobody else has been. And we'll just kind of, I guess, coordinate it and lead it from here. But here's the point in all that. How's all that going to happen? I don't know. Who's, who's, where's all the money going to come from? I don't know. My God is able. I, I don't know how all of the details are going to work out. And don't freak out over them yet, church. We don't need to worry about them yet. We don't even know what they are. I just know that our God is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. And he wants me, and I think he wants all of us, praying that way. Growing up in our prayers. Stretching. Reaching. Pleading. And trusting in him. And I'm so thankful that he's able And that through it he will get glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen? Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray. We bless you. We praise you. We thank you, O God. You are great and you are greatly to be praised. And that greatness has been poured out in so many ways. The heavens declare your glory. And Lord, we pray your church would declare it too. That the same power that spoke this world into existence and raised Jesus from the grave has raised your church up with you, Lord, into those heavenly realms. We're there, but we're not there yet. And in the meantime, we pray we'd be filled with your spirit. We'd be growing in our grasp of your love and of your grace. And they got together with all the saints, not just here at Westwood, but in other churches in this community and around this state, Lord, even around this country, that God together, we would just exemplify the grace and power of Jesus and that God together, this world would be transformed through the gospel. Lost souls would be saved. Communities would be transformed. God, we pray that. Father, we pray that you'd raise up from within this church young people who hear the call to preach, to go. You'd raise up in this church, Lord, couples who are ready to say yes and do whatever it is you're calling them to do. That, God, you would be raising up from within this church these little children that are going to come to love Jesus and grow up to be strong men and women of faith. We pray that, Lord. To you be glory in your church and in Christ. Father, save today someone. 
Thank you that you brought Jesus into this world. You came into this world, Jesus. You lived the perfect life that God requires. You did it on our behalf. You died on the cross in our place. You took our sin and took the punishment of God for us. You were buried and raised. And you are King of kings and Lord of lords. And you're a gentle shepherd and a caring Savior who's ready to take in the most broken of us. Give us your grace to save us and make us whole. Father, I pray someone today would come to Christ and find the life that's found only in Him. And all of this we lift up for His great name's praise. Amen.